I'm Jed Bodwin, and you're listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest on Episode 4 is Johnny Iguana. Iguana is a musician and composer based in Chicago, Illinois. He is currently a member of the band The Claudettes, and in 2020, he released the blues album Johnny Iguana's Chicago Spectacular via Delmark Records. Iguana is currently working on a new release for that label as he continues to write, record, and tour with the Claudettes. Additionally, he has composed original music for the award-winning series The Bear. In this conversation, Iguana discusses his early years as a musician and his time spent playing with blues legends Junior Wells and Otis Rush. That's on Into Music, coming up now. The first thing that I ask people is when they first really became aware of music and and what kind of got them excited about music. I mean, the earliest I can remember is um, apart from being very little and having some 45s, I had not only did I have Elvis Don't Be Cruel, which I tried writing down the lyrics to, and you know, probably it would have been a good keepsake to see my 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 childlike mistakes uh and understanding. But I also had um, and I only recently later pieced together what it was. I had I seem to have had 10 cc. What was the what's the what's the what's the, one of the biggest hits of theirs? Um oh the things we do for love. Things we do for love. For some reason I like that, you know, this was the 70s. So like riding around in my parents red black stripe dodge duster on a boiling hot leather interior and listening to kind of 70s am radio was you know that was a pretty good time to grow up in terms of the offerings on the radio um, but then my mother and i started piano lessons the same day with the same teacher when i was eight we had just moved from new jersey to philadelphia we both decided to take piano lessons and um i struggled a little at first and she really took to it. And then our roles reversed and she kind of felt like she was plateauing or maybe descending. And I, I, my left and right hand started telepathically speaking to each other. My dad always said that it was pretty clear from very young age that I could, they could operate completely independently, which, you know, is probably a little bit of a stroke of luck as much as work. And then I got very excited and stopped going outside to play sports and just stayed inside on the sunniest of days playing piano so it's not like my teacher had to tell me to practice. I just like couldn't you couldn't take me off of there. It's just, you know, it's like having some kind of like the best toy in the world. And the thing that's great about the piano is and I feel like every home if every home had a piano, there would be so much more peace and love around because it's like you can sit down and you can play or find a chord. And it's so soothing when you almost I call it Ouija boarding, just moving your hands around and not even really thinking about it. Just what if I did this layout, but then I moved this finger a little this way rather than think I'll augment this chord, you know, or diminish this chord if you just, and and sometimes it just takes that to sort of take everything else off your racing mind. That got exciting to me almost immediately. And I had five years of lessons and then I felt like I was ready to start playing in bands. And my mother would, um, who had long since abandoned her piano lessons, started carrying, helping. She was so excited to have me playing music in groups with friends that she was, she would drive me and help me carry speakers and stuff from, you know, when I was 13 years old. Then within that, when did you sort of encounter maybe like the, the first person that you would consider a mentor? 
My first teacher, you know, my first teacher retired and then I didn't like my second teacher. My third teacher was okay. It was just that first one that managed to light, you know, my mother listened to classical music around the house and, um, and that's what I was playing. But I, I also, as I got a little older, I started bringing in books of like Led Zeppelin and even Rush to play on piano and uh, Michael Jackson, whatever the hits were at the time I get the sheet music for. So that first teacher really did. And then I also interned when I was in high school at a place where there was like a, this guy had a business where he went, he had a recording studio and I recorded in there, but he also had a business where he went around to malls and you could pick out a song and they'd have a cassette and and he would have recorded a band playing it and you record your vocals and it merges it and you went walk away with a cassette of you singing a song you like with the band and, and just hanging around with him at the studio, um, got me more excited about just, uh, you know, and then I got a four track. My, my, my uncle not only sent me, my uncle who's a musician and long been in the music business, sent me some cassettes of, and, and also I'm, I think just cassettes he dubbed of a lot of different music, but he also helped me pick out a Tascam four track. So I did my first four track recording at home and learned how to do that. And it's so exciting to just, you know, like the old days of recording, as you can see this great documentary. Did you ever see this documentary? I guess it's early in the morning. I think what his name was, but um, it, it, it's it, it's about a, an engineer who, oh God, later I'll see this. Like, how could you not remember his name? But who who kind of pioneered having sliders in studios. And and he was there from the age where Ray Charles or John Coltrane were recording and you just got like the mix happened as the performance happened. And later they would do multi-tracking and mix after the fact. And he was... Um, it's called his name and then a life in music. Um, it's it's Tom Dowd, right? Tom Dowd, a life in music. You've done it. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I don't usually feel like I depend on coffee, but maybe this morning <laughs> this morning conversation required it. Um, Tom Dowd. Yeah, did you ever see that documentary? Yeah. It, did, what didn't that stick with you? It was he was oh, so yeah. humble and charming and such also a wonderful piano player when he sat down. But him just like being so humble as to say like the geniuses came in and I just didn't mess it up. I just like. Eh. He obviously did more than that, but but that that was exciting to sort of to see how it's done, and then to have my own four track at home and and try to do that because that's all I can mostly do is set up mics around the room and get a live recording. We weren't like overdubbing, but but kind of learning to do that, and then having what felt like a record we made right at home. And then uh, luckily, I had a lot of teenage friends who were similarly excited. In any moment we could, we'd get together and and record on that thing, which I still have in the other room. It's, you know, unfortunately the rubber cracks and breaks when you don't use it for 20 years. <laughs> so it's just, it's a relic now. I had it repaired once and then it sat there another five years and broke again. And, but those early recording days, just exhaustively working on that were, were extremely exciting, you know, even more than just playing. Almost from the beginning, you were able to kind of make this connection between the business side you know, the different facets, the recording, the business, the playing, the creating, all of that. So here in Chicago, I moved to Chicago when I was 23 and I joined the Junior Wells Band. He was a particular hero of mine. I, I played a lot of music of his at my first blues band when we were just old enough to drive outside Philadelphia. And um, and so when I met him, I moved out here to Chicago. And eventually I met Barrelhouse Chuck, who was a really well-known piano player here. And he had an advantage I didn't have, which I regret that just circumstances didn't lead me this way but he sat on the piano bench with little brother montgomery and blind john davis you know people like this like really iconic piano players just he was of the age and in the place to do that and you know in philadelphia there was a jazz scene 
and we'd, we'd go with our fake IDs and go and maybe see some jazz there. But I had friends that knew those musicians. The only musicians, I didn't really have any older mentor musicians, but I did listen to a lot of people I, I held up as heroes from a young age. Everyone from my three greatest heroes when I was a teenager were Junior Wells, Mike Watt, and Joe Strummer. And um, I, I always say that I joined the Junior Wells band years later. I My band, Oh My God, that I had got to open up for Mike Watt. And on another occasion, Mike Watt and his whole band slept at my house and we hung out. And so I got to sort of tick that box of having hung with two of them. And then my band, Oh My God, was on a very short list to open for Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros at the Metro in Chicago when he died, which was crushing to me for in every way because I know the like little warren of of green rooms there are at the metro where there's just this dark area where you just someone's coming out of this green room and there's this other one i was like i'm gonna see joe strummer with a cigarette behind his ear walking out of that one and i'm gonna talk to him and he seems like the kind of guy that's gonna talk to me you know let alone share a stage and stuff and that didn't quite happen uh but i i regretted that i got all of my learning other than how to use my fingers for my lessons from people that were my age, from just maybe a little more advanced in certain styles than me. But but my heroes, I learned off of cassettes just by endless rewinding and playing. Certainly, I would, I would advise young musicians if possible, you know, you never know who you can reach, you know, uh, who you can reach for, you know, and plus these days you can get a Zoom lesson from your hero. You know, you know it's like, imagine the difference. It's like you would have had to have driven down to Arkansas or whatever the case may be. Let me shut this up. Uh, but now, you know, there's a lot, especially since times got tough for musicians starting in 2020, you've seen the explosion of people saying, I offer lessons, you know, on, on Facebook and stuff. And you, gosh, imagine the opportunity there. I'm curious about the Junior Wells thing, because you mentioned him as a as a hero, and then you wind up in his sphere playing with him. So how did that kind of happen? And then what what did you learn from him once you were in his band? For many years, I've wanted to print a T-shirt that said, when in doubt, go out on it. And it really sprung from my own experience because, well, I'll start at the end and go back to the beginning. My feeling is there's a lot of people who aren't going to go out. They're going to watch Netflix. Even before COVID, when there was just like the powerful nemesis of just every show ever made available on command, you know, that, that that's that's a tough proposition, you know, when for, as opposed to when I started playing music and there were six things on TV, they all sucked and you just went out. So certain people are are, are irretrievable. They're not going to go out. But those people that are on the fence on a given night, hmm, thinking about going out, kind of drizzly. I don't know. I was thinking about a little tired now. Push yourself. Go out because I've never regretted going out. You never know what you're going to see. And it's like the whole art gallery, theater, music venue world would be so much more supported and thriving if people on that fence tipped over to going out. So it's like, when in doubt, go out, I think is, but for me, that originated in me living in New York City with my first job after college, which was, which was called cover copy, where you write the back covers of books, or you write the the, um, the sleeves on a hardcover book. So that's what I was doing. I was an English major and I was a musician. So I was writing, I got that job at Warner Books, the Warner, the book publishing arm of the Warner company, you know, in New York City on the Avenue of the Americas. And so it was, you know, it was really fun to be 21 living in New York City and and uh, and having a job. And my job was writing. So that was cool. I was still playing music in my little bedroom there on the keyboard. But um, I had a friend and we were going to go shoot pool. And the only place near me to shoot pool was a country western bar called Coyote Kate's in Midtown Manhattan. 
and he had to he was going to he was actually going to law school at Columbia University so he had to take a train down and it was and it was raining and we almost called it off but 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 by the time I thought about not going. He was already on that train and didn't have a cell phone. So I was like, I got to go meet Nick. So so I walked over to the bar. And that night, there was a very short-lived blues jam at that country western bar. And it was run by this guy who turned out to be named Robert Turner. And he, he had a keyboard there. And I played with some other musicians. And he took a liking to me and my playing. And we got to talking. Turns out, cosmically, he was the Junior Wells keyboard player a couple of years earlier when I had seen Junior Wells in the Ambler Cabaret outside Philadelphia. And Robert that night had, um, they'd done two sets with Junior Wells and Robert went to the bathroom between them. I walked into the bathroom after him. And I said, hey, I'm a piano player. I would love to sit in the second set. He said, sure, I'll arrange it. No problem. Problem was he ended up going across the street to another bar, met a girl and never came back for the second set. And he was my liaison to come. I, I couldn't just wave and go, I'll play. I just felt too bashful, you know. I In retrospect, they probably would have said, come on up here, you know. But they, but they didn't know me from Adam, so I figured I couldn't do that. So I missed my opportunity there. But it turns out the guy hosting the Blues Jam was that missing piano player. The guy hosting Blues Jam near my house at this place. I almost didn't go. Uh, so we got to talking, and he said, and I told him, we, we realized we had met under that other circumstance, and he said, you know, Junior's coming to town in a couple of days playing at, at uh, Manny's Car Wash in Manhattan, and he said, you want to go? I said, yeah, and, and we ended up that night going out that same night we first met at the Blues Jam and had some beers and got, got real chummy, and then the night I was supposed to meet him at the Junior Well Show, for some reason, I just didn't really feel like going out. I had to work in the next morning. It was a weeknight, but I did go, and I met him. And Junior was playing, and um, and then he there was no keyboard player. So the ex-keyboard player took Junior's road manager, who was also his nephew, into the back room and said, this kid's really good. He really loves Junior stuff and knows it really well. And so they agreed to give me an audition live at the Boston House of Blues, which was new. And, and when I did that on an acoustic piano that was facing away from the rest of the band, they couldn't quite tell if I had it or not. So they said, come again. They're playing in Providence, Rhode Island. The next day I had a second audition. My my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife at the moment, she uh, mouthed me while I was on stage. You got the gig, like she somehow got wind that they like the road manager said, like yeah, we're gonna take him to Chicago. So we but we both moved to Chicago. This is why I say when in doubt, go out. Two nights I almost didn't go out, and my entire life basically I probably would have been in publishing and been like a occasional piano player because that's just I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then when I joined the band of my hero, and then not only did I tour the world with him, but ended up touring with Otis Rush, ended up having my own band go to all over Europe and UK. And I've been played in the Middle East and Japan and South America. It's like pretty glad I went out that night. <laughs> um, but you asked me also about what he taught me a lot, you know, he and it was by example, just um, he had he was one of the greats in a way that like I'm sure he worked really hard as a musician when he was young and he learned from Rice Miller in particular, Sonny Boy Williamson, number two, they called him and, uh, and other um, players. But, um, but Junior just had something and you could sense it when you're around him. He just had this charisma, this kind of glow. It's just some, somehow some, when you're around someone that's that great, there's something about them that set them apart, you know, and, and a lot of people, it's just, they play one note and then you look at him and talk to him and it all kind of, gels together there's something about this person like one person in the band said every everyone in the world is different from each other but junior's more different yeah, i remember that but yeah that's true he just uh and he didn't really he loved my playing from the beginning and was very supportive i was 
23. I was a white Jewish kid from Philadelphia. Everyone else was seasoned African-American musicians from the South and from Midwest. And the people in this particular band at that time had been in the bands of Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Magic Sam, B.B. King's band leader. You know, this is what they had all done. I had done none of that, but they, again, I couldn't have gotten a gig in like a, the band of something like B.B. King or something, but I knew Junior stuff. Those were the records I had, and we played like two albums worth of his stuff in my band. So again, when in doubt, go out. You know, I met to have all the bands to me. But Junior, just by example, just, um, you know, just the way he would entertain and, and um, you know, he was almost childlike in a way with the way he was irascible and he would just occasionally just have a problem with the horn section. The horn section, they're effing up. You know, he'd say something, Mr. Bass Player is effing up lately. You know, just always sort of mad at somebody and he had a sort of dirty sense of humor too. You know, he'd just pull sex toys out of the, out of the, uh, out of the glove compartment and you'd look over and he'd just be holding one in the air. Just, why not? He enjoyed life. Um, but but um, I don't know, you know, sometimes you learn something from somebody and it's not something you can even put into words. I just became a much better musician and also learned to be on my feet at all times because the way he gave you a solo was he suddenly pointed at you. And if you didn't launch into it, you were in big trouble because you know, you, the, sh the show has to be boom, boom, boom. And um, you just, you know, do, do not be in any kind of daze while you're playing. Be listening at all times and watching at all times, you know. And over the course of 100 minutes, not everybody is wired that way or geared that way, you know. And in that band, there were a lot of musicians, which sadly most of them are gone now. They were, you know, maybe a cautionary example. I should not always live the blues man lifestyle because that's not necessarily a way of longevity is your goal. Um, but a lot of them really, when I was 23 and they were in their 40s, um, did sit me down in the room and say, you got to play more beds, man. You got to play more beds, which is just like, occasionally hold a chord rather than just riff because it's impressive you know like that's the kind of thing you learn as you grad as you as you get older just because you can do something doesn't mean you should it's like having a nuclear arsenal at your disposal you know it's like you you have it but should you use it really think about that because very often it's better to just uh again just listen and, and accompany and try to make it sound like a track right now with your contribution rather than what if a bunch of musicians are up there being impressive at the same time? It's just cacophony, you know? And I call that musician's music. When I go out and see a band and they're all just playing up there, just like, I'm good and I'm good and I'm good. It doesn't really hit your heart, you know? It's just like, uh, I guess it's impressive, but I'm not interested in that. And certainly the masses aren't. You you kind of touched on this from, from the musical side, but I wonder about from the personality side, when you enter this world where these guys are more seasoned, they've been at it for a while you're sort of this newcomer how important is it to kind of know when to to lay back personality wise as well and just kind of let their experience guide the situation you know i think i had that part down because i was so kind of reverent and humble in that respect i kept a journal and at the time the, the drummer used to make fun of me because i'd be sitting in there the next morning as we we're about to drive to the next town writing and he pointed at me and say mr belvedere if you remember, there was the show where there's at the end of every show, he would like journalize and there is, you know, you'd, you'd hear his thoughts as he's writing. I, I kept like 600 pages of journal entries. So I, I kind of wrote down what was happening and the adventures and the quotes from people more than I did contribute. I mean, they, they laughed and talked a lot. And I was from such a different place and age that I, I didn't, at first I was very shy, even though I'm not very shy and I am talkative. Eventually I opened up that way, but I, I was quite, I was quiet as a mouse for a while because uh, 
I, I, this was not a situation that I knew how to enter and instantly be part of it and like find my character in their play or something at all. Personality wise, I think I, I eventually they f come to found out that I was um, silly and funny and odd, you know, like we all are, you know, and, and kind of opened up after a while. But if I had let just my, my sense of humor, you know, fly from the beginning, I think I would have gotten a lot of like record scratch silences because <laughs> I, I was coming from a different place and and um, I was really glad to just absorb it for a while and I felt extremely lucky and privileged during that whole period after a while some of them came and went from the band and there be became more people like me younger people some other white musicians and it was still cool but it wasn't as it wasn't as much of just a complete fish out of water I was like then I was like a fish in the water at that point I guess you know and that was cool. But I, at that point, I started already looking forward and deciding I was going to do other things. Three years was enough of that. That was a pretty good, I mean, because we were doing 35 days on the road and then coming home and doing laundry and then going out for another 35 days. I was on, I was on the road for a hundred and, you know, certainly 150 days a year or something. And a lot of days at a time. Once I didn't feel like I had as many people in the band to learn from that way, I, I just started looking, looking ahead. Let's talk about this this other dynamic. I think that when you join a, a the band of an established artist, you know, it's famous among among musicians who played with Frank Zappa to say that Frank was always the boss. He was not going to be your friend, and he was very adamant about that. So if he gave you something that seemed like friendship, that was something that people really prized. What was what was the relationship like then in that band? The kind of power dynamic, if you will. Before I joined, actually, at that time where I mentioned I saw them at the Ambler Cabaret and the and the and the the keyboard player went MIA for the second set, that was apparently fairly typical at that point because there was no road manager. Junior enjoyed his gin. There were coke addicts in the band, and it's a miracle that they didn't all die. In fact, they did have a really bad accident sometime after that. And there were jaws of life and one person actually did die in that because someone fell asleep at the wheel, someone I knew. And, and it's a tra tragic situation. But soon after that, Junior's nephew became the road manager and got rid of some people he felt were problems that way, brought in some other people. That's when I got my chance, actually. The culture of the band kind of changed. It's just there are bands that are out there driving around and there's just like, uh, you know, inmate in, in the inmates of busted out and, and stole the van and are driving around it's like so but but so that that culture had changed at, at that point um so the road manager junior's nephew was the boss because he was watching like a hawk to make sure that it was done professionally safely people were coming to practice and knowing the arrangements uh and that junior his his uncle who he loved and revered and grew up with um had the best show he could have at the time and there was not going to be any nonsense you know he was he had been in the military and he had a little bit of that sort of bearing to him you know just so he so junior also didn't ride with us on the long trips in the van he would ride if the trip was two hours or less but when we drove from chicago to phoenix he wasn't in that van he flew the day of or the day before you know and um it was the rest of us out there with the road manager who i became very good friends with but but so junior was i always said i was i felt very lucky i was in a situation where junior was my favorite person in that band if i got to sit at a lunch counter with him like at a diner at a waffle house or something the uh the the day after a show and he was sober and i was drinking coffee or to eating it was just wonderful to talk to him he was just uh 
like I said, he was warm, funny. There was a childlike charm to him. And, uh, and he was, he didn't care. I mean, he, he was the boss like on stage and he would, you know, obviously he was the leader, but he didn't see to all the little details and talk about what time lobby call was and, and, you know, all this stuff that was Michael. So that was, a, I was actually a really nice dynamic to have someone who was the road manager who was brought in. Plus this was during a big blues revival in the mid nineties where every, I, I always say when I became a professional musician, I was under the misconception that, you know, what shows are sold out shows are sold out. That's what shows are. Cause every show I went to was sold out because it was a blues revival. And junior was one of the, biggest living blues artist so it was a time where it was important for his show to be good and the band to be good and there was you know it was a great opportunity he had never really made any, made any money in his life and now he was playing big venues and selling them out and he was he had his mother he kind of took care of and it was like a family affair with him and his his mother back home and and his his nephew running the running the tour and he ran it very sternly because it, it was really like it wasn't just a job for him tell me a little bit about Otis Rush. This is this is after Junior. Yeah. 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 I got one. I got invited over to his apartment to meet him and his wife. And you know, I grew up listening to Otis Rush records. And it was a little daunting because he's not childlike. He's fairly severe when you when I the few times I had met him, he just seemed to have like a intensity, like almost like a lava bubbling inside him, even though you just get to sort of sense it. He was in more intense one of the most incredible explosive singers you'd ever seen and, and player and his playing sounded like his singing, just um, kind of an opera level talent, you know, but I went to his apartment on a high rise on Lakeshore drive and summoned over there to meet him because he had wanted to have me go on this tour. I had already missed, I, I was on an album that he was a guest on and I couldn't, because of my schedule, I couldn't make that day. So I'd regretted they had to bring in another piano player for my chance to be on a recording with him. But then I got to do a tour with him to the East coast he was already not very well in, in a few different ways. He he was told not to drink. He was drinking red wine. We almost missed a show because he had to have his knee like lanced, I think, because it swelled up so much. He probably, he's probably diabetic. And, you know, some some people are told you're diabetic. You can't carry on this way. And they go, uh-huh. And then they do what they want to do. And, you know, so he wasn't supposed to be drinking. And he was just he had some anger in him. And he, I wrote down some stories that he told about what what to do if I was ever in the city of Chicago and a lion was chasing me. He instructed me to jump into a swimming pool. That was my way to safety, which is funny because which is more far-fetched for me to be chased by a lion in Chicago or to happen upon a swimming pool? <laughs> but anyway, should this come up, I now have a ch better chance at survival. You know, he would have been one of the biggest stars in blues, but he only died a few years ago, but he was just not very well for quite a few years. And mostly he would just show up at a venue and say hi. He had like a tribute at Blues Fest here. But unfortunately, he just wasn't very active starting from the 90s on. So I think in the 70s and 80s, he was playing a lot. And but but my time riding around with him was interesting, but it was it, it, it was starkly different than Junior because Junior, like I said, was just like a prankster. I would not use that word about about Otis Rush. Um, he wasn't like he wasn't ornery and mean or something. There was just something he was darker hued, you know, in his out in his temperament. And uh, at the time, I think he, his wife was struggling to keep him in the kind of line she wanted to to do his best. And we played a show where I was told by the Boston House of Blues that they never had so many people ask for their money back just because. He'd get stuck on a song and keep playing it. He was kind of facing away from the crowd and a song would stretch to 10 minutes. 
And I think he just wasn't showmanship was not on his mind. He was maybe he wasn't quite all there or something. Um, but it was still pretty thrilling to just hear him. You know, you hear people band and play one string. You're like, that's the sound I've been hearing my whole life. I've heard that sound. It's two different people can pick up the same guitar and the same amp and play one note. And it's like embouchure with a horn. It's like it does not sound the same. You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The vibrato, just the way I think. Even on keyboards, how is that? You can hit a keyboard and you think like, it's like a mechanism. It should sound the same, but it doesn't, you know, but especially on guitar, I feel like. So that was, that was a thrill, but I didn't have the, I, I didn't spend as much time with him and and he wasn't as personable. You know, he was kind of just um, in his own world a little bit. You mentioned something too, the, the idea of showmanship and a lot of these sort of elder players, they're also coming from a period of time where, it wasn't just about hearing the band. It was also about seeing the band, right? There had to be that, that pop to the, to the live performance. Well, Junior was very mindful of that. If you were to visit his hotel room, um, he'd invite you in cheerily and you come in and you'd see his bed was where he slept. And then there was a second bed and it had all his suits and jewelry laid out on it. And he was going to pick out and he talked a lot about coordination, you know, your handkerchief and your, and your shirt. And so he had a lot of different suits they had all the stuff laid out. He had a lot of bling, you know, and uh, they would have a band set where the band plays and then they'd welcome up with a great flourish and he'd come out. And so it was definitely a show. And and he James Brown was kind of his hero. Like Junior at that stage was sort of part Muddy Waters world, part James Brown, where he, you know, he wanted to do kind of, a, and you could hear it on even especially Hoodoo Man Blues right from the beginning, snatch it back and hold it like, that he had that, like, he was funky. He, he ends the first verse with saying that, but I, he said, I ain't got no brand new bag. So he sort of had, like, a a certain, like, you know, uh, you know, satire, I guess, and a little, like, you know, like, I'm my own thing, you know, I'm blues, but but he did but he did have a brand new bag. He definitely took some James Brown stuff, and he, he took it to the stage, and he danced it, and, you know, he, he, he was just, he was, he was very, but the show was came easily for him because he was just a card. He was just very entertaining human being. And you put a little tank of, he weighed, he was like five, three, 105 pounds and he barely ate. So you put a little tank of in him and he's feeling good. <laughs> you know, the trick was one and a half tank not three and a half. Cause then the show went, went downhill. You know, it was that magic spot. The road manager, his nephew, tried very hard to make sure that some yokel didn't come up and know Junior's drink was Tanqueray and bring him a shot. And Junior didn't have any. There goes the show. <laughs> you know, it was like, um, but he, yeah, he, he was very much, and and everyone in the band dressed well. Nobody came out. I know a guy who's a music manager in the South, and he manages some really well-known bands. And he had one artist who he said he was begging him. Don't take the shirt. Don't take the stage in a in a t shirt, shorts, and flip flops. You want to wear flip flops? You're going to make flip flop money. That's, that's his expression. You flip flop money. <laughs> like no one in the no one in the in the Junior Wells band was was wanted to make flip flop money or was wearing flip flops. You know, they have suits all around. You know, and whatever the look is, I do think it's you know important to have. Someone also said you want your band to be some club that people want to become a member of. You know, and 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 a lot of that is how. Do you look like something, you know, not just like a motley crew, so to speak, just all dressed differently, but like, do you end up appearing as something that people go, oh, it's, I always thought a band like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club has it right from the name. Like, I know what that is. You know, it's just like sometimes the band's name alone or their press photo, the way they take the stage is all one club and everyone that wants to see it and, you know, or be in the Kiss Army, you know, wants to be part of that. 
I'm Jed Bodwin, and you've been listening to Into Music from the KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our guest has been Chicago-based musician and composer Johnny Iguana. You can learn more about his solo work at johnnyiguana.com and about his band The Claudettes at theclaudettes.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Torn Anderson. Our digital producers are Carly Cooper, Beth Golay, and Hugo Fan. Production assistance is by Fletcher Powell. You can learn more about Into Music at kmuw.org and email us at info at kmuw.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.